nothing conclusive that says yes this is James specifically um, but all the evidence says you look at it points to the brother of Jesus the half brother of Jesus being the one that pens this letter he was the head of the church at Jerusalem and says in the first verse that his letter is going out to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad so most likely Christian Jews at this point that have been scattered from the original church in Jerusalem. Um, there are some indications that he is writing to Jews in general. Uh, later in the book, he will have, um, he will give warnings about don't miss the signs that you've been given. Um, and I think even in the passage that we will look at today, there are some hints of warning to don't miss what's being said in this um, passage about salvation and where you find it, all right? But as I started studying James, I found that James really comes, is a letter that gives us tests so that we can determine where do we stand with God? Do we have a true, genuine salvation or not? Um, it's similar to First John in that way. Um, James does not say this is a test, this is a test, this is your next test. What we can see as we go through it, that that's really how it lines up. Um, if you're not doing these things, then you're deceiving yourself. If you're not doing this, you're deceiving yourself. And so we, as we go through, and I'll just summarize the first part of the first chapter, um, because in case you aren't going to Sunday school, um, this is what we're studying in Sunday school on Sunday mornings right now. Um, and we started through James. We've made it through the first three sections, if you include the first verse as a separate section for the introduction. And it's been very interesting to see how James is writing, how much nuance he puts into his writing. Um, and it's been very informative, I believe, at least for myself, and from comments that I've received, others hearing it in Sunday school think so as well. Um, but the first two tests for us to determine whether we're truly saved, we have genuine salvation, is one, how do you endure trials? Do you endure trials at all? Because there will be trials, right? James says in verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if you encounter, but when you encounter them. You're going to face trials. You're going to face problems in life. How are you supposed to deal with them? And the first thing he said, and we read it in verse 2, is choose joy. Not the emotion, not a happy feeling, but I can choose joy because I can choose to remember that no matter what's happening, no matter what trial I'm going through now, it's temporary. And because I'm saved, I have a place with God in heaven. And whether it happens at, during this trial or later, 
I have a promise, and God is faithful to that promise, so I can choose to take joy in that rather than in my specific circumstances. Second way to endure trials, build understanding. In other words, what's going on in the trial? Why do I face trials? How to build joy, how to choose joy. Um, Third thing, submit your will to God's. God, you're letting me go through this trial, and I'm not going to force my way out of it by doing something that would be against your word and just decide, you know, I'm going to do my own thing so I don't have to put up with this anymore. We continue to choose to follow God's will, follow his word, and let him choose when the trial will be over. We have a trusting heart, trusting in his goodness and his kindness to us, and humility kind of goes along with submitting your will. Um, And we'll get back to humility in a little bit. Um, If you endure the trials, we have three results, maturity or completeness in our uh, spiritual walk, We have blessing, we're put in a good position, and we receive the crown of life. The second test was, what do we do with our temptations? Who do we blame? And the first thing James says in this section is, don't blame God. God is not to blame for your temptation. He is not evil. He doesn't partake in evil. He's not tempted by evil, and he's not going to tempt you to do evil just to prove uh, a point or just to get you in a position where um, you would grow. That doesn't say we're never tempted, but James tells us our temptations come from our own lusts, our own desires for the things that we want, the things that feel good, and are we going to give into that? So God doesn't tempt us, but he does give us every pleasant and complete gift. Right? And that starts in verse 18 with birthing us into salvation. Go ahead and read verse 18, as it's very close to what we'll be talking about today. In the exercise of his will, God brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. So he, that um, phrase there, brought us forth, literally ha- is the idea of being birthed into the world. So he births us into salvation, brings us into salvation, so that we might be the first fruits, that part of the offering that's dedicated and set apart to God for his glory. All right? So he has many creatures, right? Whether you could, just human beings, we have billions, right? Billions upon billions that have ever lived. And he's saying those who have received salvation are the first fruits, those the ones that are set aside in order to honor God. And that leads us that the way that we get to that salvation is through the word of truth. The Bible, right? He's given us his word. We learn from his word who he is, how he's provided for our salvation. Even if you heard that verbally from somebody else, guess what? They got it from the Bible. So the word of truth is the source, is the way that God brings us to salvation, to the understanding of who he is. There are people who have just read the Bible, um, and God, through his word, draws them to himself and, provide, and they come to salvation. They don't have somebody else telling them, well, here's what you should believe, here's what God's word says. They're able to read it, and God makes it clear to them. The word of God brings about salvation. 
So then that brings up James's third test. And that third test is, what do you do with the Word of God? How do you react to it? How do you respond to the Word of God? In that we come to verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So we often use this about our relationships with one another, right? Be slow to speak, quick to hear what the other person is saying, slow to speak so that you're hearing what they're saying, and slow to anger, don't be angry at people. But it really has nothing to do with personal relationships whatsoever. It's how are you responding to the Word of God? The Word of God, verse 18, is how we are brought forth into salvation. So how do you deal with it? Are you quick to listen to the Word of God? Uh, are you quick? Are you slow to teach the Word of God? Are you slow to get angry at the Word of God? Um, I think we, you know, the quick to hear is very clear. Um, the word speak uh, could be speak or teach, um, and I think translating it or thinking of it as teaching is backed up a little bit by. Chapter 3, verse 1, if you flip over there, it says, Let not many of you be teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will encounter or endure stricter judgment. So when Carl teaches, when Pastor Mike teaches, when I myself teach, we understand we're taking on a greater responsibility um, that if we, and if we handle that responsibility poorly, it's going to bring about a greater judgment on us, Right? Um, especially if you are not truly a believer, and we'll see that that's maybe a potential issue here as we get through this passage a little bit more. If you're trying to teach the Word of God and you're not a believer, you're not going to handle it right, and you are going to encounter greater judgment because you have been leading people astray. So we take it very seriously when we teach. Um, It's not a light decision when we say, yeah, I'll get up and I'll teach, or when Pastor Mike decided to become, go to seminary and become a pastor, it wasn't, oh, yeah, that might be a good idea, yeah, what the heck, we'll go do that, and we'll try that out. No, it was a calling. He felt a burden to do it, um, and he felt like that was something that God was calling him to do, and he understood this will be a great responsibility that I, he will have to shoulder and be ready to pay a greater consequence for if he does it incorrectly. Let's go to our uh, um, this idea of being angry at the word of God. But let's just take it as- out of take in essence God out of the picture for a second. Just think about your family relationships, right? How many of us are happy and joyful when one of our family members corrects us, right? Um, And obviously, sometimes that depends on how they correct us. It can be done in a good way, in an encouraging way, and it can be in a what-do-you-think-you-were-doing kind of way. Um, And when it happens, sometimes we get offended. And if we're offended about what they're telling us, how likely are we to put their advice into practice? pretty much zero chance, right? At least at that moment. Now maybe 
give us a day or two, and we think about it, and we go, yeah, okay, they're right. That really was the best way to do it. I really should be doing these things or not doing that thing. And maybe we put it into practice. But our initial response is, I don't want nothing to do with this. Get away from me. I'm done with this conversation. I'm not doing that. Right? And the same is true when we come to the Word of God. We read things in it that we don't like, that tell us that we're not supposed to be doing something we are doing and we're enjoying. Or we read something in it that says, you should be doing this, but God, I really don't want to do that. Um, there are multiple stories through the years of people who feel like God's calling them to preach, but they're not public speakers. In fact, they hate public speaking. They can't stand the thought of being up in front of people. And so they push back against that. They're not necessarily angry at it, but they push back against it. And, but they find as they get up and they start doing stuff and they start learning to teach, that God gives them a special grace to do what he's asked them to do. But their initial response is, God, I don't know if that's really what you want me to be doing. When we take that a step further, right, and sometimes I've got something that I'm, maybe I'm holding on to, a sin that I really enjoy, and this is, um, I really don't want to give it up. And I read a passage that specifically talks about that sin, maybe I get offended. Or even just the fact that sometimes when, we, you know, when an unbeliever starts reading the Word of God and they find out that they are a sinner or their friend comes to them and tells them the Bible says you're a sinner and you need salvation, what is the response? Offense. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm a good person. Um, and when that happens, is it possible for that person to become closer to God, to become more righteous, not in that moment, at least, right? Now, again, hopefully if it's a believer and there's a sin that they're holding on to, God will keep that on their heart and they'll relent and they'll give up that sin. Um, non-believer is going to say, I'm a good person. I don't need God. Go away. Um, and then there's no way, like it says in verse 20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. They're not going to proceed to move closer to God because they're offended and they want nothing to do with him. But if this is the test, then what are we to do? How are we supposed to hear the word of God? All right? And so James is going to give us some instruction here in verses 21 and 22 about how do we hear the word of God? What's the best way to listen? What's the best way to um, Earn, or not earn, but gain the righteousness of God that we don't get if we get angry at the word of God. And so we come to verse 21, and it says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted. So the first thing that we need to do is to take off unrighteousness. And this word to lay aside oftentimes was used of a cloak or a coat. So you just... You would take off your cloak, and you'd lay it aside, and you'd go about your stuff, right? And that's the picture that James is giving us. Take off your sin, put it aside. And I wish it was this easy, right? I take it off, I put it aside, I'm done with it, I don't have to worry about that sin anymore. I put it aside. But our flesh brings us back, right? So this will be a continual process for us, taking off our sin, and 
Sometimes we'll be in seasons where we're doing really well with a particular sin, and other seasons we revert back, hopefully very shortly, to those sins. And then we, yes, Lord, I understand. I've got to take it aside, and I put it off. But if you're in the middle of your sin, you're, going to want, you're not going to want to hear the word of God, right? Just like our kids, when they've done something wrong and they know they've done something wrong, do they want to hang out with mom and dad? No, because what if they find out? What if I give it away? What if I slip and tell them what happened? You know, we don't want to be with our parents when we know we've done the things that they've told us not to because we know that there's a chance that they're going to figure it out. And we don't want to be found out. So we come to the Bible, if we're in our sin, if we haven't laid aside our sin, we don't want to read the Word of God. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to be there Sunday morning to hear it because we know there's a chance that whatever we're reading or whatever we're hearing on Sunday morning is going to speak to exactly what we're doing that we don't want to give up. And so we tend to shy away from the Word of God. So put off your sin. Filthiness is just moral impurity. General term for sin, um, I find that it's it's quite interesting. Then the James goes a little bit further um, when he says the remains of wickedness. The Greek term really has the idea of unashamed sinning. So and it, I think this is where sometimes we get a little bit closer to the idea of that he's talking to unbelievers as well because hopefully there's no believer that is sinning and is not ashamed about the sin that they're committing. Right? Maybe they haven't gotten to that point in their maturity where they don't understand what they're doing is sin, um, and they're unashamed, but once they hear it, then they're ashamed and they put it away, right? The unbeliever, they go out, they do what they want, and then they brag about it, right? They tell their friends, oh, yeah, I did this, I did that. Oh, you wouldn't have believed how drunk I got the other night. Oh, you wouldn't believe the stuff that we did when I was out the other night. They brag about it. They're not ashamed. Um, but we're here to put that aside so that we can hear the word of God. Continue the second part of verse 21. If we've put that aside, then in humility, we can receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So just like he said in verse 18, right? It is through the word that God births us into salvation. Here he's reminding us, the word of God is able to save our souls, learning that Christ died on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty. It's what the word of God is all about. If we are willing to receive that in humility, eternal life, salvation will be implanted in us. Again, James uses a level of nuance that I didn't recognize before I started studying in order to teach it for Sunday school. Um, the word translated humility speaks of meekness and gentleness. That's the way it's normally translated. And that idea isn't, oh, you're just weak and you just what, whatever happened to you. It's that you have strength under power, strength under control. Your power is under control. Um, sometimes would be used maybe of self-control, right? We have p the power to react to the things going on around us, 
Um, but if we, and maybe somebody offends us, I have the power to react. Um, my nephew, a couple weeks ago, got pushed down at school, right? Um, and the, the other kid went away before he could get back up. Uh, but he saw him later standing in line and went up and punched him in the face. Obviously not the right response, right? But that wasn't meekness. That was the opposite of meekness. He had the power to take revenge, and he used it. Meekness is, yes, you did me wrong, but I'm going to choose not to respond. I'm not going to choose not to retaliate, even though I have the ability to, the power to, so that I can do what's best for you, right? That's meekness. Not that I'm just weak and I can't do anything about what the other person did, but I choose not to use the power that I have to retaliate or to respond. And so I think that brings about, you know, we have the ability when we hear the word of God, the gospel spoken to us, we have the ability, the power to reject it, to say, no, I don't want to hear it. But in meekness, we are to control that power and to submit ourselves. It does bring in the aspect of humility, right? We have to be willing to be humble and recognize that we are sinners in order to hear the gospel. Um, but in meekness, we're to receive the word implanted. This has that idea of even that you've been hearing the gospel or been hearing the Bible multiple times through your life. Maybe not constantly, but people have been planting a seed. We use that terminology even today, right? Yeah, I'm going to share the gospel, and maybe they don't become a believer, but I've planted a seed in their heart. They've heard it. And now maybe somebody else will water that seed, and it'll grow. It's kind of the idea here, too, that we are, we've heard the word before, and now we are going to respond to it uh, finally in meekness and is able to save your souls. And then, so we lay aside our sin, we humbly receive or meekly receive the word implanted. Um, but there's one more step. Verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not hearers only, not merely hearers who delude themselves, deceive themselves, right? But prove yourselves doers. James will expand on this idea of being a doer of the word as he goes through, especially in, I believe, um, chapter 2, that faith without works is dead. Not that your works provide salvation, but if you have a genuine faith, you will have works. They will come out. They will show up. It's a natural result. Just like an apple tree produces apples, a true believer will produce works, good works. Um, a true, you could also change that to say a true believer will become a doer of the word. Um, I really I prefer the New American Standard version most of the time. Occasionally, there are words that... I'm sure they had a great reason for choosing prove yourselves doers of the word. Um, I don't know what it was. So 
To me, this is much clearer if you just say, be doers of the word, or even become doers of the word. So if you're receiving the word implanted, you're finally coming to salvation, now you are going to become doers of the word. You've heard it, you've received it, now you need to do it. And if you do not do it, if you're just hearing it and it's going in one ear and out the other, then you're deceiving yourself. Go ahead and come down to verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. I think the key to this passage is in those two words, religious and religion. Um, They're both from the same root, same Greek word root. But the first one is fearing or worshiping God. So if you believe that you are fearing God and worshiping him, you think you're following him, but you don't bridle your tongue, which, again, this is another topic that um, James will talk about later in his letter, then your religion is worthless. Well, what does he mean? What's the difference between the first word and the second word? The second word has the connotation of an external ceremonial worship. It's a fake worship. You're not truly worshiping God. You're putting on the facade. You're putting on the outside, perhaps for others to see, uh, perhaps so that they'll think you are one of them, uh, perhaps even to deceive yourself so that you think, yeah, I'm a Christian. Look, I go to church every Sunday. Um, I pay my tithes each week. Um, So, yeah, I'm a Christian, and we've put on that ceremonial worship, and we've deceived ourselves. We've deluded ourselves. Because what we really have is an external, fake, ceremonial religion that is, in James's words, worthless. Right? Verse 27, this is pure and undefiled religion. Same word as before. In the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one unstained, oneself unstained by the world. Um, sometimes, you know, there's verses that sometimes we get quoted, but they leave off part of the verse. This is one of those, Right? We often hear about, well, if you're going to be religious, then you should be taking care of orphans and widows. Um, But the world is left off the last part, right? Keep yourself unstained by the world. It's that same idea of, you know, you've laid aside your sin. Now don't get stained by the world again and go back to your sin. And again, James is not saying here, as we we study through the book, the the whole letter, he's not saying if you do these things, if you go visit and help orphans or help out widows um, and then live a clean life, that that gives you salvation. Remember that the test was how are you responding to the word? If you're a believer, you're going to respond to the word of God, part of which is telling us, that we do take care of the widows, right? Especially widows indeed, the ones that have no family left. Who's going to help them? Who's going to take care of them? 
if they're, especially if they're believers, the church should be coming alongside them and helping them. Orphans. There's, again, there were passages in the Old Testament taking care of orphans, providing for those who could not provide for themselves. So yes, as believers, as we read the word, that should be some of the natural things that come out. That we're looking out for those in need and helping to meet those needs. That's being a doer of the word, bridling the tongue, taking control of what we're saying is becoming a doer of the word. You know, there are things that we can say or talk about with somebody that are absolutely true, but we can either blast them over it or we can come alongside them in love, right? Even if it's something as simple as their, a new hairdo, what were you thinking when you let them do that to your hair, right? That might be true. Might be, maybe it is the most hideous hairdo that you've ever seen. But is that in love? No. So we bridle our tongue. We take it under control. We say, oh, I see you got a new hairdo. When did you get that? You know? And you talk to them about it, but you don't necessarily have to blast them about it. And then maybe you can, if you're a good friend, you can gently say, have you thought about changing it or doing this with it, in your mind, making it a little tamer, maybe. Um, but we bridle our tongue. And that's a simple illustration, right? Um, but it gives us that idea if we can control what we're saying. It's not just about foul language and clean language, but how do we talk to each other? Are we speaking in love when we speak to one another? Bridle your tongue. Be a doer of the word. So as we finish, we often have, at the beginning of the year, charges from pastors. Um, interestingly enough, last week, I was in Virginia with my parents, um, and their pastor gave them a charge from First Peter, um, where First Peter chapter 2, Therefore, put aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, evil, envy, and slander, like newborn babes, Long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in your salvation. Very similar, right? Put aside your filthiness and your wickedness. Long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow. James is telling us, put aside your sin. Take in the word, receive it, and then do it. Be a doer of the word. So the question for you this morning is, are you, or how are you, responding to the word? Are you responding properly? Are you a doer? Or are you merely deceiving yourself? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you've been playing the game your whole life. Your parents took you to church. You went to Sunday school your whole life. You've grown up in the church. You continue to go to church, but you've never actually truly received the word that was implanted. Maybe you're even the most moral person at work. Maybe they even tease you about the stuff that you won't do with them. But you've never truly turned your life over to Christ. If anyone tells you that, hey, you know, I've seen you doing these things, and I don't know because of these things, I don't know if you're a believer. How do you respond to that? Is it, how dare you say that to me? You get offended? 
hopefully, if you truly believe it, you're like, well, let's talk about it. What are you seeing? What is it that, I, that you think I'm doing that has you concerned over my salvation? And you talk about it and you go through it. But the unbeliever is going to say, how dare you talk to me about like that? How dare you say I'm not a believer? I've been going to church my whole life. I give money every mor- Sunday morning. You have no right to talk to me that way. Maybe you don't read your Bible. Maybe you have trouble paying attention on Sunday mornings. Take the opportunity today to turn your life over to Christ. Truly receive for the first time the word that has been implanted by many teachers over the years. Or maybe even this is the first Sunday you've heard the word. That's even better opportunity. The word has been implanted. Take the opportunity. Turn your life over to God. Start the new year with new life. Take off your filthiness. Hear the word of the Lord anew. The word that is able to save and start growing in righteousness. Heavenly Father, your word is amazing. You give us so much related to our lives and to give us the best life possible, to give us a life that is pleasing to you. Um, But we have to receive your word. There is is that duality of you are drawing us to you and our responsibility to respond to that. Many hear the word, but not everybody responds. But I pray that if there's anybody here who does not understand the gospel, that they would come talk to myself or one of the other leaders after the service. The fact that you, your word says that you died on the cross because we couldn't pay for our own sin. You suffered and bled and died on the cross for us. You took our place. You paid our penalty. And then on the third day, you rose again, proving that that payment was accepted. Help us to live a life that shows us to be doers of your word. That we're not just hearing it. It doesn't just go in one ear and out the other. But we want to be doers of your word. We want to honor you. We want to please you. We want to praise you. We most of us, I hope, have received the word implanted. And I pray that as we continue to grow in your word, that we will become more and more doers of your word, following your word, being a light to those around us so they can see the difference between someone who is enslaved to the system of the world and someone who has turned their life over to Christ and received freedom from their sin. As we... um, Take communion now, Lord. I just pray that you would bless it. Help us to remember your payment for us on the cross. Amen.